The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who are just joining us, um, over the last, well, for more than a year now, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and we are finding ourselves today, and, and for the next couple weeks, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And for many of us, this has been a very challenging, um, but very comforting season, a study where we've been able to get face-to-face with the real Jesus. Some of us, this has been the first time that we've seen Jesus in this way, while others of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, this is, this is just a great, refreshing rediscovery of who Jesus is. And, and, and something really special happens. When we see the real Jesus, we see who he is, there's a, a degree of introspection that that causes. We start to see and understand how we are, who we are. Now, this has been the case for me this week as I've studied this text, and I'm praying that this would be the same for you. As we get face-to-face with Jesus, we see how beautiful, how glorious he is, but at the same time, we're able to look and evaluate ourselves. And what I believe will happen as we look at this text is that we're going to see this contrast between two foundationally different ways of living. And one way of living is this way of self-reliance, self-dependence. This is something that our culture promotes very strongly. And on the other hand, the other way of living is the way of dependence. And what I hope to show you this morning through our passage is that the way of dependence is not only the most honest way of living, but it's the way of living where we find out how much we are loved, how much God cares for us. And so that's where we find ourselves. So if you'd grab your Bible, uh, we're in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. Um, And just so we kind of have a little bit of context as to where we're at this morning, last week Jeff did a great job in preaching um, through the the institution of the Lord's Supper, just the the verses preceding this. And what we see in in that previous passage, which Jesus instituting what we call the Lord's Supper during the Passover celebration with his disciples. And and this meal really communicates, it's a very significant meal, it communicates a lot to us. But one of the things that this communicates is the fact that Jesus is going to be killed, right? And this isn't new information. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, Mark has pointed out three different times up to this point where Jesus has told his disciples that he will be killed. And in the, the latest explanation of this, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this, that the Son of Man, that Jesus himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they'll spit on him, and they'll flog him, and they'll kill him. 
right? What this shows us is that Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's coming up, right? And as he broke the bread and as he passed around the wine, he did so knowing that, that very soon it would be his body that's broken. It's his blood that would be shed. He knew that there was a day of great pain, of great humiliation, of agony, a very, very difficult trying day, literally a, a day from hell. And it's interesting to see, knowing that that's what's coming up for Jesus in his, his immediate future, it's interesting to see what Jesus does in the moments preceding this. And we're, we get a glimpse of this here in, in verse 26, where it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In the last hours of Jesus' life as a free man, Jesus is singing hymns with his disciples and spending time in prayer. All right, next week, we'll, we'll see the agony of Jesus' prayer. Um, but this week, what I want to do is show you the significance of Jesus singing in this time. Now, last week, um, Jeff, while he was preaching, he taught us about the, the traditional Passover script, right? There's a certain liturgy or certain flow to how an evening with the Passover would go. And, and during that time, throughout the evening, Psalms 113 to Psalms 118 would be sung at various points in the evening, okay? Um, and, and at this time, commentators, Bible scholars think that what the song that they're singing, this hymn that Jesus sings with the disciples, is actually Psalm 118, which happened to be our call to worship this morning. So if you can kind of think back to, to those words. And what we see in this psalm is that it's a very joyful psalm. It's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, it talks of God's steadfast love enduring forever. Uh, it, it talks about God as our helper and our refuge in our time of distress. It says that God is our strength, our song, that he's our salvation, right? This is a, a psalm of thanksgiving. However, this psalm would have been slightly troubling, more than slightly troubling for Jesus to sing, knowing that his death is right around the corner. Because in verses 22, where it says that there would be a, a, a stone that the builders reject, Jesus would sing that knowing that he himself would be that stone that would be rejected. Verse 27, where Jesus would sing about a sacrifice that would be put up on the altar, Jesus knew that he was singing about himself, that he was going to be that sacrifice upon the altar. Now, can you imagine this? Just, just think about this. Jesus gets up to lead us in worship just like a worship leader does, and he's singing about this offering. He's singing about the sacrifice, knowing full well that it's going to be him. And, and just think about if Joel was up here leading us in worship on a Sunday morning, and he's singing about the blood that's shed for forgiveness of our sins. Can you just imagine the terror that would be on his face if that were him, if he were in Jesus' position, knowing that he's singing about himself? So Jesus stands up with his disciples. He's singing about the sacrifice, knowing full well it's him that he's singing about. And, and as I was thinking about it, Jesus, at this point, he's already changed this Passover liturgy a couple of times, right? Um, and so if it would have been really that troubling, he could have just skipped this song. You know, he could say, hey, guys, don't really feel like singing about this. You know, I don't feel like singing about the sacrifice that I'm about to offer. We're just going to skip this today. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that because he knew what singing accomplishes. Right? In this hour and in the brutal hours that will follow, Jesus is aware of his limitedness as a human. 
Philippians 2 talks about this when it says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. Right? This means that Jesus set aside his divine power that he had as God so that he would know what it's like to be a man. And in becoming human, Jesus took on the basic human insufficiencies that we all share, right? Traits of limitedness that mark us even before sin entered the world. For example, physical limited, limitedness, like hunger. Like Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. I, I, had a, I had an operation done this week, and I had to, leading up to it, I had to fast for, uh, not fast, but I had to not eat for uh, like 35-some hours. And after the operation, I got done, and I was so hungry. I was a little bit out of it, too. I had gone under. Uh, and I came out, and I, I told my wife, uh, we got go to gotta go to Chipotle. We got to go to Sonic. And there's another place that we got to go. I don't know what it is yet, but it probably involves cake. <laughs> and so I did it. And within 20 minutes, I pounded a Chipotle burrito. I pounded a double cheeseburger with bacon, large tater tots. You know, like, I just went after it. And that's just 30 hours of not eating anything. Now, Jesus went 40 days in the desert without eating anything. Just imagine the hunger pains that he had, right? Jesus knew what it was like to be tired and weary. Through through Mark's account, we see different points where Jesus is retreating to rest. He's sleeping in the boat in the midst of the storm. But not only are there physical limitations, there are spiritual limitations Jesus brought upon himself. That Jesus made himself dependent upon the Spirit and his heavenly Father. Jesus said himself that I do nothing on my own. All the miracles, all the healing, all the ministry, all the teaching, everything Jesus did was done in reliance upon his heavenly father. And so in this situation where Jesus' death is approaching, Jesus knows that he's, he's in a situation that's far beyond himself, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And what he does in a gesture of need and dependence and of worship, he seeks the Father through song and prayer. Now, song has great power. Singing songs, singing spiritual songs and hymns and psalms has great power because what it does is it connects limited, finite people to the infinite, unlimited God of the universe. Right? This is what Jesus is doing here. He's connecting himself to God in dependence. And, and so what we see is singing is far more than just making noises with our vocal cords. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is something far more than just making melodies. Singing hymn songs, spiritual song, hymn psalms, spiritual songs is a means of grace. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a means of grace? It means that as we sing to God, he ministers to us. He dispenses grace to us through the act of singing. He instructs us. He encourages us. He comforts us. He equips us. He delights us. He nourishes us as we are brought into his presence through song. Now, singing hymns, as a means of grace, if this is the way that we receive what God desires to give us, then you and I, we're depriving ourselves if we don't sing, right? Our souls are being deprived of something special, right? 
And this is what it looks like. If we're coming in late, if we're coming in late to the gathering, we miss the, I'm not looking at anybody in particular here. If we're coming in late to the gathering, right, and we miss the time of worship, right, we're missing out on something. If we're, if we're standing here and we're lip syncing as the lyrics flash, watermelon, 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 like we're missing out on something. If we're letting the good singers carry the melody while we just sit back and, and watch the words go past, the screen, past us on the screen, we're missing out on something special. Because here's the deal. God actually wants to hear your voice no matter, no matter how bad of a singer you think you are. Because through that, as you're singing song, not only are you worshiping God, but you're also declaring your dependence on God. You're reaching out to him in your limitedness. And through it, God ministers to us. He nourishes us as we are brought into his presence through song. So we see singing is important. It's an important part of life. If it weren't important, Jesus wouldn't be doing it in the last hours of his life. By singing this hymn, Jesus is not only leading his disciples to draw near to God, but he himself is drawing near to God in the midst of his limitedness. In the most pressing hours of Jesus' life, he's coming to God through song and prayer. Right, it's important to see that. But this, the tone of, of what's going on here changes as soon as we go to verse 27, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away. Right, you go from singing this joyous song to, to turning a very sharp corner and saying, all you guys are going to fall away. Now, previously, back in verse 18, we, Jesus had a similar discussion with his disciples where he said, there's going to be one of you who betrays me. Right? And we, we know now that was Judas. He was going to exchange Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver uh, with the religious leaders. But now Jesus is saying, not just one of you is going to break this relationship that we have, all of you, all of my closest friends are going to leave me. Just think about that. As Jesus looks his 11 closest friends in the eye, right, these are guys who have been with Jesus through thick and thin. They're guys who have left the comforts of their previous life. They've left their jobs. They left their homes. They left their families. They left the comforts to follow Jesus throughout the hillsides. Right? These are guys who have been devoted to, up to this point, I mean, to do that requires some degree of devotion. They've been devoted to Jesus through all these things, and now Jesus is saying, you guys are, are going to bail on me. You're going to fa- fall away. You're, you're going to leave me high and dry. And before we get to the reaction of the disciples, Jesus is going to tell us why this is, why the disciples are going to fall away. And that's in verse, continuing in verse 27, it says, for it is written... Okay, that's, that's the answer. This is why it's happening. It says, because for it is written. And when Jesus says that, he's pointing us back to the Old Testament prophecies here. He's telling us about a Messiah who would come to save and protect God's people. And so he quotes Zechariah 13, where it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that he is this shepherd, right? He's the shepherd. The disciples are the sheep. He is going to be struck, the disciples scatter. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus use this, uh, this um, idea of being a shepherd. All right, back in Mark chapter 6, 
um, we saw Jesus come to a hillside that was full of people, and it says that he looked at the people, he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, John chapter 10, Jesus explicitly says, I am the good shepherd. Right, Jesus is communicating to his disciples again here that he is the shepherd, and this carries a great deal of significance. Now, naturally, for people who are from an agrarian culture, Jesus' original audience, this, this using the, the metaphor of being a shepherd makes a lot of, would make a lot of sense to them because most of them either had firsthand experience with being a shepherd or they knew somebody with firsthand experience with being a shepherd. They knew what it, take, what it took to look after a flock, right? So this would be a metaphor that communicated, communicated something very significant, very pointed to these people. But we, on the other hand, we might be a little bit confused when Jesus says he's a shepherd. Like, why, why would Jesus identify himself as a stinky lower-class laborer, right? It doesn't make sense, really, right? And, and since that's the case, what we need to do is we need to be informed to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate and telling these people that he's like a shepherd. So we've got to go back to biblical times to understand what it means to be a shepherd. And a shepherd, to be a shepherd means that above all things, you are committed to your flock. It means that you're responsible for feeding, for leading, for protecting your sheep all the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's your responsibility. So every day you would take your flock from the pen or the stable, wherever they stay the night, and you take them to a pasture so they could eat well, they could drink from clear streams, the sheep would be nourished. And then the shepherd would take them back to safety at the end of the night. Now, because of this, this kind of routine that the shepherd has in, in taking his sheep to a place where they can be fed and be nourished, the sheep trust the shepherd. Right? They're willing to follow the shepherd wherever he goes because they know that the shepherd has their best interests in mind. And while a shepherd would take his sheep out to the pasture, he would have two very, very important things to do, and they both relate to protecting the flock. The first one is to make sure that no sheep go astray, right? Sheep naturally like to wander, as you can imagine, so they just kind of go wherever the grass is green, and, and so what the shepherd has to do is make sure that they don't wander off into danger, they don't leave the flock. The other thing that the shepherd would have to do is to protect the flock from, from thieves and from predators. Now, this is the mark of a good shepherd, right? This, when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, this is one of the marks that he explains. He says that a good shepherd cares so deeply for his sheep that he's willing to risk his life for them. We see this when King David is about to go out and, and, and sling some stones at Goliath. He recounts his days of bravery as a young shepherd where he would put himself between his flock and, and, and a predator, lions and bears, right? David would stand there to, to, to protect his flock. And, and we would wonder why. Why would he do that? Why would he risk his own life to save a sheep? Why, why wouldn't he just give the lion one little lamb you know, like, leave us alone, get out of here, I don't want to die. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he do that? And the reason for that is this. Because sheep are the shepherd's treasured possession. The sheep are incredibly valuable 
to the shepherd. They mean something significant to him. They're special to him. So much so that the shepherd knows every sheep by name. Now, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Right? This is the meaning when Jesus says that he will be struck down. He's saying that, that he will be killed on account of the sheep. Jesus is telling his, his disciples that in order to protect his flock from the punishment of sin, from how, how you have wandered away from God, I am going to give my life in exchange for yours. Why? Why does Jesus do this? It's because he cares deeply for his, his, his people, just like a shepherd cares deeply for his sheep. But not only will Jesus be killed, but he'll also be raised, as he foretells in verse 28, if we keep going. He says, after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That even after Jesus, the good shepherd, is, has laid down his life for his sheep, even after, at the expense of his sheep, he has laid down his life, Jesus will be reunited with his flock and resume his care and protection as the risen shepherd. Right? This just shows us Jesus' commitment to his people, right? That even if after people, his disciples even, will flee from him, that they'll run away from him, they'll deny him, Jesus will not deny them, that he will come after them and go before them to Galilee and reunite with them so he can resume his role as their shepherd, right? This is the kind of good shepherd Jesus is. Now, at the same time Jesus is communicating what kind of a shepherd he is, he's also communicating to his disciples what they're like. Right? He's saying to them that they are like sheep. And, and this communicates both flattering things, right? For example, they're deeply cared for, they're well taken care of, they're special to the shepherd, but, but there would also be some very unflattering things about being a sheep, that they would be characterized as here. And one of those things is that they're prone to wandering away. They're prone to leaving the comforts and safeties that the shepherd offers to kind of seek their own desires, right? And doing so, sheep are susceptible to injury and attack. And so to be classified as a sheep means that the disciples are dependent creatures who rely upon a shepherd to lead them to safe, lead them safely and securely, and that apart from the shepherd, they're very vulnerable, right? Because, because they are dependent and limited creatures, when their leader goes down, when he hits the ground, they take off running for their lives. Now, I have a little bit of personal experience with a dynamic like this. When I was growing up, I was uh, one of my favorite things was to be a 4-H'er. I was basically like Boy Scouts for farm kids. Um, and, and so in my 4-H career, there were a couple of years where I raised sheep. Like I would I'd do the chores, um, and then I'd show them at the county fair. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I do as the summer comes, as showtime comes up, not only would I do the chores, you know, feed them, water them, but I, I would walk them. I'd make sure they got their exercise, kind of like you'd walk a dog. Um, so they kind of build up that muscle and stuff. So they, they're the best sheep at the fair. Um, and I would usually take two sheep at a time, and I'd walk them around our farm. Um, and, because, and that's because sheep don't like being alone. Um, so we take two at a time, and we walk around. And the whole process, when you'd walk 
I think it'd take about an hour in my recollection. That could be wrong, but take about an hour from start to finish to get out, take a couple of rounds around the farm, bring them back. But one day, um, I was feeling kind of lazy, I guess, uh, and I thought, you know what? I- I'm not going to just take two sheep. I'm going to take three sheep. We're going to just do this. Take three sheep, and at the time, just kind of in your mind, picture uh, uh, Sam that's sixth grade-ish, um, maybe five, six, chubby, um, not particularly strong, and just imagine him, you know, kind of walking out with three sheep. And, and as I go out, um, things are going pretty well, you know, like, I'm thinking, like, there's potential for this to go really poorly for me. I could, uh, sheep could run away from me, and it could go bad. But things were going really well, and I was going along, uh, and, and a car drove past our our house, and, and in doing so, kicked up gravel, honked a horn, and as I turned back to look to see who it was, because I want to be a friendly neighbor and wave at them, uh, I step in a pothole, twist my ankle, and I'm going down with my sheep. The sheep at this point are terrified, Right? They're so scared, and they start taking off. And midway down, I still got a hold of the halters, and I'm going down, and they just jet. And so for about 10, 15 yards, I get drugged by my sheep because they know the leader's going down. If he's going down, I'm next, <laughs> right? And this is, this is what sheep do. When the leader hits the ground, they take off running. And this is what Jesus is saying what's going to happen to him, that the, that the shepherd, the leader, is going to take a blow and that the sheep will disappear. They'll take off and the disciples will scatter because of it. And the disciples' reaction to this, it's, they don't like it. They, they don't like anything about it, especially Peter, because he's so appalled by the statement that he'd be like a sheep who takes off that he snaps back at Jesus in this Peter-like way, it says, even though they all fall away, talking about the other disciples, even though these guys might fall away, I will never do it, right? Just, you can see the trademark self-righteousness, the self-assurance that Peter has when he says this. He said, these other 10 guys, these guys are posers, right? These guys are the guys who are gonna flop. They're gonna run away. They're gonna fail. They're, gonna, they're the ones who are weak and vulnerable, but not me, I'm not like them. I'm strong. I'm determined. I'm able. I'm strong enough to hang in there. And so Peter is convinced of himself. He's, he's certain in his own ability that he will not be among those who leave Jesus high and dry. But, but this isn't fooling Jesus because Jesus goes on and says to Peter, he says, Peter, not only will you deny me, but you'll deny me tonight and you'll do it three times. Peter, dude, you're, you're off base here. You're, gonna, you're going to be just like these sheep. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 30. He says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And, and when Peter heard this, he got even more upset and responds to Jesus emphatically in verse 31. He says, even if I must die with you, I won't do it. I will not deny you. And this just shows us how much Peter hates the idea of being classified as a sheep. He refuses to even entertain the idea that he could fall away from Jesus, that he'd rather die than be seen as weak and vulnerable. And and all the disciples are feeling the same way because at the end of verse 31, it says that they all said the same, that they're all on board with Peter, that there's no way that they will fall away. There's no way that they're going to fail like this. 
And as I was sitting in this passage to, this week, thinking about, thinking about what God's trying to say through this, this passage, uh, I noticed something pretty interesting. It struck me that Jesus is foretelling a series of events that will happen in the future, which involves all of the disciples denying Jesus in a very literal sense. Right? Later on in chapter 14, when the, the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, they all take off. One of the disciples is so determined to get away that he sheds his clothes and runs away in the nude right, to get away. That's how serious he was about denying Jesus. And then we even see later on where Peter does exactly as Jesus says, where he, he denies Jesus three times. People ask him, Peter, do you know who Jesus is? Have you, aren't you one of his disciples? And every time he says, no, no, I'm not. So there's this very literal sense of denial that we see coming, but, but in this passage right here, there's a, a, another kind of denial that's going on. As Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to flee like sheep, that they're going to be like sheep, that they're going to fall away, the disciples deny it, right? What they're denying here is their sheep-likeness. They're denying their need for Jesus as their shepherd. They're rejecting the idea that they need a shepherd to feed, lead, and protect them, and they're refusing to see that they're vulnerable, limited, dependent people. Right, that's what they're denying at this point. And in fact, when, when the disciples think of themselves, they, they think of themselves as winners. Right? They think that they're strong, they're willing, they're able, they can press through, they can do the right thing, they can be great men. They're convinced that there's a power that lies within them that will allow them to do the things they wish or hope they can do. And essentially what they're saying is that, they, that they're self Sufficient. They're saying, I don't need a shepherd. I can do it on my own. Now, at this point, you might be seeing the absurdity of the disciples in this, right? Jesus is telling, like, the Son of God is telling them something that will happen, and they're denying it, right? That's, that's pretty absurd. You might be thinking, how in the world could these disciples think so highly of themselves? How could they strike such a disgusting balance of ignorance and arrogance? And if this is what you're thinking, and you're shaking your head in disgust at them, like, how could they do that? Right? Then you don't understand how you and I are just like the disciples. We probably don't understand is how we're just like sheep, that we're weak and dependent, that we're prone to wandering, and that we're more than capable of failure, right? And this, right, and me just saying that, that might be offensive to you. But this is a truth that is supported all throughout Scripture. Scripture supports the, the natural human limitations that are built into us as humans that we experience even before sin entered the world. Like I, I alluded to earlier, the, the hunger and, and, and limitedness of being tired and weary. But even more so, we were created as humans to be dependent upon God, that we needed God even in a perfect world. And while there are lim natural limitations that were present before the fall, our limitedness increased. Our weakness was exacerbated when sin entered the world. 
right? In Adam and Eve's attempt to become like God, that was, the, that was the tempting thing that Satan offered them in the garden, that if you eat this forbidden fruit, you will become unlimited like God. You will become sufficient in yourself like God. But in doing so, Adam and Eve, what they found was their weakness blew up. They found the opposite. They became more needy, less able, far more dependent. And this is the same for all of us. As, as we are sinners ourselves, our need grows. It intensifies. Our vulnerability expands. We're weakened and unable to do the things we ought to do, and we don't do the things we don't do the things we ought to do. And we don't do, oh man, I'm confusing myself. But you get it. We do things we shouldn't do. And we do things that, oh man, I can't even do it like that. I give up. My point exactly. I can't even, can't even speak right. And we see this all throughout Scripture the whole time. Right? This isn't just an isolated thing. All throughout Scripture, we see in the Psalms. Psalm 16 says, without God, I have no good in me. Jesus tells the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what Paul means when he writes to the Corinthians to tell them that they are not sufficient in themselves, but their sufficiency comes from God. And even though scripture lays this out plainly, that we are weak and limited and vulnerable and sinful, this idea of being weak and dependent does not sit well with us. We don't like the feeling of being incapable. Like, we don't like the feeling of being insufficient, not good enough, helpless. But if we're honest with ourselves, and I mean really honest with ourselves, there are so many areas of our life where we ought to feel insufficient. Almost every area of our life, we ought to feel insufficient. I was thinking about this this week. My insufficiency surface as I think of my role as a father and a husband. Right? Have you ever thought about what it takes, how impossible it is to be an exemplary spouse or parent? Right? You go to work, you put in the hours, you're, you're doing it for your family. You come home, and you have the responsibility to put the needs of others before your own. Right? For me, I'm at the point where I get home and I want to just throw on Netflix and sit on the couch the rest of the night. Those are my desires, but to be an exemplary husband, to be an exemplary father means that I lay down my preferences for my wife and my child. I I feel this weakness when I think about my role in ministry as an MC leader or or the friendships that I have. I, I can't help but feel helpless in those things, that there's very, very little that I can actually accomplish myself. And even as I've been preparing the sermon, the responsibility that I have to feed God's people, right, to, to present God's word to you, it's an impossible task for me to do in and of myself. Right? I feel, honestly, I feel so incapable. Right? And you might be resonated with this right now. You, you think that no matter what, all of us, we have different roles we play in life, whether you're, you're a student, you're a healthcare professional, a stay-at-home mom, you're a teacher, a spouse, MC leaders, these things that we 
have before us carry high demands on our life, and we're unable to meet them in and of ourselves, right? let alone, right? These are, just, these are just rules that we have. Let alone do we have the ability to justify ourselves before God. And when our insufficiencies are exposed, we have two options. We either hide our weaknesses, pretend they don't exist, right? Or we accept them, we embrace those weaknesses, and we reach out for help. It seems like a simple decision, right? But as most of us can attest to, it is so difficult to ask for help. It's hard to admit that we don't have what it takes. So the easy thing for us to do is to hide our weaknesses, pretend like they don't exist. We create, create this illusion of our own competency. We think we can handle things on our own. We can be the good husband, be the good teacher, be the good MC leader, whatever it is. We do that without seeking help. How do we... Right, some, some of you might be convinced at this point, right? Like, oh, yeah, I can, I can see how I do that. But some of us are, man, this is where I was at. I was stubborn with this text. It's like, oh, man, I'm not like that. But, but I felt like the Spirit was saying, hey, Sam, ask yourself this question. When was the last time you asked for prayer? Like, not, not a superficial prayer, like, pray for my neighbor's uh, grandma's fiance or something like that, like, like a real heartfelt prayer. Right? Whether it's asking for help from people around you or going to God and being honest about the weaknesses you have in family life, with your job, and fighting sin and asking those people, and asking God to help you. The other option that we have is to come out of hiding. It's to to accept the reality of our weakness and to reach out for help. And like I said, this is difficult. This is hard work. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us uncomfortable to say that, that we are weak. But here's the thing. When we begin to understand the realness of our inadequacies, it's then that we are opened up to find the sufficiency of Jesus, our good shepherd. Right? If you want to see how strong Jesus is, you first have to See your weakness for what it is. You have to be honest about it. Now listen to what J.I. Packer says in his book um, titled, Weakness is the Way. This is a little bit of a longer uh, passage, so stick with me here. But the, he says this, the truth, however, is that in many respects, and certainly in spiritual matters, we are all weak and inadequate, and we need to face it. He says, sin has disabled us across the board that we need to be aware of our limitations and to let this awareness work in us a humility and self-distrust and a realization of our helplessness. Thus, we may learn 
our need to to depend on Christ, our Savior and our Lord at every turn of the road, to practice that dependence as one of the constant habits of our heart, and hereby discover what the Apostle Paul discovered before us. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is the only way for us to find a real strength. The only way is to come out of hiding, to stop denying our weaknesses and cling to the sufficiency and the power of Christ, who out of love for his people, right, people who are incapable of bearing the punishment for their own sins, for for wandering away from God. This is the Jesus that lays down his life And because Jesus, this good shepherd, lived the perfect life, a life completely dependent upon the Father, never given into sin, Jesus satisfies God on our behalf, right? Just think back to our absolution that it was by his wounds we are healed. Jesus proves that he's capable for us. He satisfies God on our behalf. And as proof of God's satisfaction, Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of God. So Jesus is no longer a stricken shepherd, but a resurrected shepherd, right? A shepherd who ultimately leads us, feeds us, and protects us by bringing us into the kingdom of God, by bringing us into the fold of God, being in God's flock, Friends, this is why, this is why the gospel is good news for us weak and needy people. Jesus' love, care, and protection is essentially everything we need. Whatever we lack is found in Christ. And it's available to us if we are willing to admit our need and go to that Savior Shepherd. And this is the thing that makes Christianity different from every other major world religion. Other religions say, first, you got to overcome your weaknesses. You got to make yourself strong, be disciplined, and then, then you'll be accepted. But the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, that you are weaker, more insufficient than than you ever know. But at the same time, you are more loved and more accepted than you could ever dream. This is the gospel. That's good news. But to live a dependent upon life, dependent life upon Christ is incredibly challenging. That in itself, to be dependent, to be weak, to be needy is a, a tough task that we are incapable of doing. We have this natural gravity to rely on our own self, to rely on our own strength time and time again. This is why when we put our faith in Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And as he lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit teaches us what it's like, what it looks like, how to do it, how to be dependent upon Christ for all things, for our righteousness, for acceptance, for wisdom, for patience, for generosity, for strength. The Spirit is instructing us in that, and he's at work strengthening us. This is what Paul means when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. 
It's when we realize that we don't have what it takes. That's when the Spirit steps in to supply our needs, to to help us be dependent upon Christ. Richard Sibes, who's a, a Puritan, says this. He says that from our own strength, we cannot bear the least trouble, but by the Spirit's assistance, we can bear the greatest. This is This is the way in which Jesus endured the cross, completely dependent upon the Spirit, dependent upon the Father. Right, and as I wrap this up, I just want to present to you that this passage contrasts two very, very different ways of living. There's the way of denial, which is modeled by the disciples. Right? where we reject and we ignore our limitedness, where we're afraid of our weakness, where our acceptance before God and before others rises and falls based upon our performance. Or there's the way of dependence, which Jesus models for us, where we are honest about our limitedness and our weakness, and we reach out to God for help. And when we do so, when we turn to God, We'll find the strength and sufficiency in our resurrected Savior. Just as our, our, our call to worship says today, I pray that this would, be, this would be the anthem of our hearts as we know how weak we are. It says, verse 5, out of my distress I called upon the Lord. Let's pray this. I'm going to pray this over us. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to trust you, Jesus, than to trust ourselves and rely upon our own abilities. And we declare this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous God. We we thank you for Jesus being our good shepherd and laying down his life for us as incapable, weak people. We're thankful to know that Jesus, our good shepherd, his love is exclusively for weak and needy people. So, Father, we are not ashamed in our weakness because our weakness leads us to depend on you. Father, we ask for forgiveness for the times where when we, when we do experience that weakness, we hide it or we cover it or we try to, try to make ourselves sufficient. Father, we repent of that way of living. We see that that's the way of, uh, of self-promotion, and it's, it's such a, a, a difficult path to walk. Father, we see that there's a better path, a a better way of living, and that's a way of dependency where we can turn to our good shepherd who loves us and cares for us and nourishes us and be fed, be cared for, be sanctified, be saved. So we thank you, Jesus, for being our good shepherd. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.